This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday, time to focus on all things municipal. And we're in the midst of the election campaign. And to the extent that anything is gaining traction, housing is probably the top issue. We have a new StatsCan report on that subject. And here's one sign that, yes, house prices are coming down. FOOP is replacing FOMO. We'll tell you what that means momentarily. And then there's the question of getting around and also getting out of town. Traffic seems worse than ever. Ever, If you were thinking of getting off the road, uh, driving that is, and taking public transit, well, eight subway stations will be closed this weekend. And here's no surprise, Customers rate Pearson the worst airport in North America. So what else is new? Okay, people, what do you think about these things? The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, it's time to tune into the town. And now I'd like to welcome David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Councillor James Pasternak of Ward 6, York Centre, and Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of Blog T.O. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. Let us begin with Lauren. So... FOOP replacing FOMO, please translate. Uh, yes. So FOOP is a new term coined by a local real estate brokerage and analysis firm called Zucasa that means fear of overpaying. So FOMO, I mean, coined in the mid audies is fear of missing out, kind of kept people from staying in and getting rest because they didn't want to miss anything. Now, FOOP, FOOP is a bit different. It's what uh, analysts are describing as the phenomenon of people holding back from buying homes because they're seeing housing prices tank. And I mean, if you had bought a home a year and a half ago in Toronto or any of the suburbs, I mean, your investment would have gone down by now. So I think a lot of people now are like, oh, the bubble's bursting. We don't necessarily want to buy now because they think the prices might slide more. So fear of overpaying is keeping a lot of buyers on the sidelines right now is what surveys have shown. Well, it also seems to me there's a lot of uh, reasonable behavior like we had when we bought our homes, like uh, getting them inspected before you put your money down or maybe saying, you know, uh, I'm going to take a few days to think about this. Uh David Crombie, what what do you make of that? Is this maybe a, just a, a good uh, breath breather? It might well be the, the breathers that people are actually looking for, because it, uh, there's no doubt that the price of housing is a number of factors. But but when it comes to buying your place, uh, the, the the question of affordability is important. And so people have found themselves; they've always found themselves trying to make sure that they're buying more than they can afford, but I think they can afford over time. I think that, 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 that factor is still there. But we were living for the last year or two in a, in a different, really un, 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 um, just a, a world that is not understood by, by most people because it was dictated by a kind of hothouse uh, 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 set of prices that went up and up and up and people could not deal with it. So they kept on trying to gamble. Uh, we're, we're uh, going to have to uh, fix David's line. James Pasternak, so are you seeing that easing in your part of the city and on the other side of it? We've seen numbers uh, about the number of people who uh, are either uh, paying too much of their income for rent uh, and they're overcrowded and also in places that need repairs. Uh, what's your view of that, James? Yeah, there seems to be there seems to be a softening of single family detached uh, houses uh, and uh, an uptick in uh, condominiums and of course rental costs. It's important to remember that uh, if people are, oops, I guess fear of overpaying, 
the principal residence is the perhaps the only investment one can actually live and enjoy in uh, while you're paying it off. Um, the other thing you have to calculate is what it's going to cost you to wait out the market. Are you going to sit in a rental at four thousand, three, four thousand a month? You know, for four or five years while you while you wait for the market to uh, to soften a little bit, and there's a cost uh, to that as well. The thing is, you know, while while interest rates have been ticking up historically, they still remain very low. I would have begged for these interest rates when my wife and I bought our first Toronto home in the mid '80s. Mm. <laughs> at one point, our, at one yeah. point, our um, our mortgage was was worth uh, more than the house itself, but we. We hung on for for over ten years, and it's uh, it gained its value back, uh, and that's that's what people have to do: make their own calculus. Well, yeah, that happened after the the crash of the early '90s. There were a lot of people who had to walk away. I mean, it's one thing if you were able to finance like that, but a lot of people wouldn't be allowed to finance if the mortgage is higher than the value of the house. The bank will say, "Uh, uh, 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 no, we're not going there." I think that's part of the problem, too, with younger people just buying their first homes. I would love to stop throwing money away on rent, obviously. But, um, you know, with the rules in place now, for any home over $1 million, you need a 20% down payment. Not a lot of people just have that kind of cash floating around. So as advantageous as it would be over the long term, even if I'm okay with losing money on the short term on my investment, it's like, I just can't. Like, a lot of people just can't. I mean, there's no way to, even if you can get the mortgage, it's like, oh my gosh, these down payments are insane. Well, yeah, the down payments, uh, exactly. And, and, uh, when we were getting our first homes, the, the high, huge interest rates notwithstanding, the down payments were easier to manage. Uh, I mean, we have to acknowledge that. But, you know, the way maybe we have to change the mindset about renting. I mean, you're talking about throwing money away. There are a lot of places where people rent and they rent forever and and there are advantages to that. And David, maybe it's just a mindset that has to change. Well, it does. It it may have to change, but can you hear me? Yep. Okay, sorry. but it, 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 it may have to change, but it's interesting to me to note that the percentage of rental, rental has not changed very, very much. It is going to, uh, with the price of housing being so high, ownership housing, uh, that it's placing a great strain uh, on rental prices as well. And that's what you're going to see in, in the immediate future. Well, yeah, rental prices have already started to creep up, uh, and maybe creep is the wrong word, Lauren. <laughs> Skyrocket is more like it, as we like to say. Um, I think we saw rental prices dip a lot during the pandemic because a lot of people were leaving town, especially in one bedrooms. And now, uh, by most accounts, by most analyses, um, they are higher now than they were before the pandemic. Um, Average rent prices in the city, I think, twenty three hundred for an average apartment or condo rental in the city. So I do agree that like. You know, I think I'm in one of those positions where I would at this point, like, be happy to rent for life. I mean, it, there are other ways to make money on investments. Um, and, and maybe you're right. The mindset kind of around that needs to change. Property is obviously a solid and reliable investment. But in the meantime, when we aren't having opportunities to invest in property, maybe, you know. It, it, it's it's a place you live. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, we're very fortunate. My husband and I, we have a home, but we're not leaving I mean, I know a lot of people think of it as a way to finance your retirement, but I also don't get uh, why would you want to leave your comfortable home just when you're going to be at home more often? Doesn't make sense to me at all. I I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's turn to uh, getting around town. And David, you've always been talking about basic services. So I don't think it's my imagination that just traffic is nutso. People are really angry. I don't know if it's a lack of coordination of all the construction and repair that's going on. I mean, to me, it's partly, has the city just given up? <laughs> well, you better ask James that, but I don't, I don't think so. I think we're in the throes of historic change in our use of the automobile, A, and B, our use of other vehicles of, of, of transport uh, as well. And so uh, planners somewhat, some time ago and politicians adopted in Toronto the idea 
of the complete streets. And complete streets, if you just walk around now, you see that you've got scooters and motorized scooters and, and, tri- and, and motorized tricycles. It's unbelievable the number of new ways of getting around. And that is play pop with, what we, what, with the capacity of streets to cope. And so that's why, in a sense, the city is always trying to change its way of doing things because, it, because habits by people and their affordability of transport transportation facilities is such that it's creating a tremendous havoc on the streets. Uh, James pa- Pasternak, has the city given up in terms of coordination? No, no, absolutely not. We, oh, we never give up. Uh, but I would, I would agree the traffic congestion, uh, the gridlock, uh, the ability to get ar- around by, uh, by an automobile is becoming more and more difficult. Uh, By anything, factors. sorry, even a, walking. Uh, road, you've got a road system uh, that was built for a much smaller city in the 1960s. You've got a transit system that's probably 30 years behind the times. It should have been probably three times the number of stations and routes that are offered now. Um, and and we're, we, we, sh- we should be accelerating opportunities for micromobility, which, which David has correctly uh, referenced. So we're, we have $29 billion um, on, on, in the ground uh, of, uh, of new transit that's being built. We're um, promoting um, safer pedestrian access and, and easier ways to get around. Uh, and, of course, we have our Vision Zero strategy to make sure there's better enhanced state, state Which is um, totally not working. <laughs> for, uh, for pedestrians, for motorists. All these factors lead to a, to a better city and getting around. Well, yeah, I just said vision zero, Lauren. Not working. <laughs> Not working as far as we can see. And there was an interesting piece that you had in Blog TO on this really weird new speed bump that sent a cyclist to hospital. And I can tell you that, you know, when we got a new, uh, I don't even know what it was called, rampy kind of a thing for a TTC bus stop, uh, there was no paint on it and it caused a lot of people to put a lot of damage on their cars and, and to fall on their bicycles. Yeah, this is a, a really weird speed bump to me because, you know, no- normally these speed humps are are kind of horizontal across the road. They're parallel so that you drive yeah. over them. Um, this is a speed bump that is kind of placed vertically looking forward between a bike lane and the road. And they had said that the reason they had put that there was to stop cars um, or make them not drive into the bike lane when they're turning. It was at, it's at Bloor and Ellis, I believe. Ellis um, Park Road. Yeah, Ellis Park. And when they turn right or left, they wanted them to slow down. But what is happening is that, you know, as cyclists are being pushed over to the side and they try to just simply go over into the bike lane, um, this speed hump is right there. And it's 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 almost like a reverse TTC streetcar track to me. There's that little dip. You don't see it. It can really get you. If you don't see that little hump going yeah. that way, it can really get you. So, yeah, I mean, someone but, was recently very injured. And, and I want to... That's terrible, it, but... Shouldn't the bikes be in the bike lane to begin with? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> they um, aren't. Yeah. Right? I, I guess it depends on how the traffic is, is flowing and where they're coming from. But I, I did want to note that the reason they put this here as well was there, um, there are a lot of near misses, they called them, where cars almost hit bicycles. And at that intersection, they had calculated that for every 1,000 cyclists, there was 7.3 near misses where a car almost strikes a bike. I don't know how exactly they find, define that. I'm sure it's out there, but, um, you know, I, I don't think that this is going to help anyone be more safe, though, or help any near misses. Maybe better signage, maybe put in a crosswalk. I don't know. Everyone just needs to kind of pay attention to the road all the time. That's what I would advise, because like you said, it's changing without any sort of markings on it. And it's just if crazy. If you're going to put around. a barrier there, then it, it it should be a barrier that people can see easily in in, in the midst of everything. Right. Uh, let's take a call from Helen in Toronto. Hi, Helen. Hi, Libby. Go ahead, you're on the air. Uh, thank you. Uh, I wish that the city had somebody who would properly coordinate what's going on. One street south of me, a gel bank, has been ripped up, closed up and down. Can't they just coordinate the job so that they put <laughs> one contractor after the other and finish it instead of opening it and closing it, opening it and closing it? 
everything in the manor seems to go that way. Uh, uh, thank you, Helen, for that. And I've, I've had this conversation with the mayor, not recently, but he's like, yeah, this is what they were going to do. Uh, Councillor Pasternak says this is what they are doing. But, you know, people out in the streets say maybe not so much. Councillor Pasternak? That, yeah. So um, we're deeply frustrated with our subcontractors for two main things. One is um, starting a construction project and then abandoning it for weeks where you don't see any work uh, going on, where it's blocking lanes. The other part is unjustified lane closures where they put up the orange pylons to block an active lane and there's no workers, no work, no digging, no equipment, and they leave that up for the whole weekend. It's totally unacceptable. And uh, also, we're wondering why these projects take so long with every excuse in the book on why they're not finished on time. Okay. So when we get back, when we get back in the next term, we're going to build in penalties for subcontractors that are not finishing this work on time, that are abandoning construction sites, and that are closing lanes unnecessarily. Are, Are you telling me that at the moment you have no recourse against people you are paying that are doing this to you, you're telling me you can't withhold the check that's coming? I can only tell you, Olivia, that what we have now is not working. Well, yeah, I mean, David, what is the problem with, uh, you know, uh, enforcing or uh, what is the problem with with just making sure things get done properly as even as a private homeowner, you know, if if I'm not happy with work not proceeding, I have some levers, money. I think James is right. The, the city cannot escape its responsibility for getting things done and getting them done on time. Um, there, are, there are cities around the world. Some are better, some are worse. But the fact of the matter is, historically, Toronto has had what we call the technical planning committee uh, made up of city bureaucrats, not politicians, uh, and their job to make sure that coordination occurred on all public works. If you were doing some things for one thing, you would check to make sure that other uh, other were done at the same time. It seems to me that it is a responsibility of the city, and it's a responsibility that the city has not carried up. There's not enough care, a judgment, not enough care for the fundamental services that the city requires. We seem to put far more attention to vanity projects than we do to public works. I I have to agree with you. And again, I've said this for weeks. I think that a lot of city staff that are supposed to be working from home are perhaps not working that hard because the proof is in the pudding, Lauren. I'm just curious as to how private construction companies, even subcontractors for the city, can shut down entire streets without authorization. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, Councillor Pasternak, you said that there are un- unauthorized street closures, right? Uh, lane closures. Like if I, as a private citizen or, or any private company, just went out like as a reporter for my job, I'm like, I'm going to close off this section of street for three weeks without any permission from the city or the police, like, I'm pretty sure that someone would come and be like, you can't do this. So why are these construction companies, these subcontractors allowed to keep doing this? It's really impacting people's lives every day. Yeah, and you can just remove it if they don't have permission to do it. Right. You know, where they hire off-duty cops, we could hire on-duty <laughs> cops, like, take this down. Right. It shouldn't be here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. No. Yes, the answer uh, is? Yeah, yeah, no, no, no it's, it, it's James here. And, um, there, you know, I mean, you touched on the work from home thing, and I said in a previous show here uh, that some of the main problems we're facing at the city is that um, much of our public service that coordinates, strategically coordinates a lot of our projects, continue to work from home, uh, much to the chagrin of councillors. And you cannot run a complicated organization like the City of Toronto from kitchen tables. You cannot. And... Uh, we're going to get a new city manager uh, in the new term, and they're going to be on march. He's going to be on marching orders to get the civil service back to work in the towers. I'm going to take a call from Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Hi, Libby. Uh, I have to uh, comment on the issue of uh, the blocking of, of roads at Young and Eglinton. They've set up a whole uh, right lane, put up um, barriers 
so the workers working on the subway can park their cars. <laughs> I wish they'd do that for me. Well, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, they, everybody's frustrated. But if we think we're going to change municipal workers, dream along, dream along. I was there for eight years as a counselor. You know, your job as a counselor is to set policy. Um, you can only hope that others will uh, make people work faster. But uh, sorry, this is just life. Uh, I I disagree. I think that life uh, changes, as David keeps pointing out, and I I think I I don't understand why you can't uh, induce people to do the things they are paid to do. I I agree in the theory, but good luck. I I, I think we would all be saying this wherever we live in the world. I mean, other than possibly China, where you've got an authoritarian regime. Otherwise, you know, the counselor's job is to set policy. It's other people's job to carry out the work. And, um, you know, it's it's very difficult to get that uh, momentum going that would exist in the private sector. Okay. Yeah. Thank if you. I could offer, it seems to me that that's with great respect. That's the, I, the council is responsible, yes, for setting policy, is also accountable for ensuring the implementation of that policy. Make yep. no mistake about it. That's what people expect. That's what they expected for years. Well, exactly. I, and what we've been saying here is that there is a breakdown in the very basic things that people expect, which leads me to the next thing. And I know this has to be done, but... TTC is closing eight subway stations on the weekend. Now, just to, to tell you a little personal story, uh, everybody knows I say I drive because public transit doesn't go from where I am to the places that I go. Um, and I'm a bad person, but, <laughs> but, uh, there was one weekend where I thought, you know what? I'm going to take the subway to where I'm going. I have a little bit more time. I duly walk to the subway, and guess what? It's closed. <laughs> and there were massive lineups of people trying to get taxis and all the rest of it. But, you know, on the one hand, we're telling people to take public transit, and, and you know, you can't get there from here. I mean, I can just tell you that we write this same post almost every week about here are the subway stations that are closed in Toronto this weekend. Um, this weekend, it's a pretty bad one. Like you said, it's all the way from Finch, um, the line one from Finch to St. Clair all day Saturday and Sunday. So that's, a, you know, that's going to mess up a lot of people's uh, commutes and journeys and on the weekend. And so if, if people are expecting they're going to be able to just hop on the subway and go, they they won't. And and they it's always often for the same reason, automatic train control system, ATC repair. I don't even remember exactly what that is. It's something that has to, the automated train control, something that has to do with the way that the trains run and the signals, but they're often closed on weekends to do this. And, and it's just again and again and again. So I would just like advise anyone always to check, like, like, look it up. The TTC posted on their Twitter, on their website, when the closures are. But it's certainly not a very reliable service on weekends, especially in warmer months when they can actually do repair work. Um, but, it, yeah, it's going to be a pretty rough weekend um, with all of the closures. And um, and Line 2 commuters as well will get a taste of the chaos with a, a planned late opening on Sunday uh, between St. George and Broadview. So it's it's never really never really working great on the weekends these days. Uh, James, is there a problem with that particular system that Lauren just flagged? Well, automated train train, and for, uh, train um, delivery systems is designed to allow a greater volume of, of subway trains to go through the system uh, in in a in a more efficient way, in a safe safe way. So it is a technology uh, that is that is TTC approved, council approved, and and it does make for a better future. These shutdowns are enormously frustrating, and they not only uh, uh, frustrate uh, individual uh, TTC riders and loyal users, but of course, they're going to attractions downtown, whether it be a movie or live theater or concert or meeting friends at a restaurant or a pub. And if people get frustrated uh, enough times, uh, they'll stop that, uh, that pattern of, of heading downtown because they won't want the aggravation. So there's, there is a cost uh, to that. And these, these closures have to be justified. And, um, and we're, we really should be taking a closer look 
to make sure they're, they're really 100% necessary. Okay, I'm looking at the time. It's time to start wrapping things up. David, are all of these issues you think getting enough attention and enough traction? We're in the middle of an election. Presumably, that should be the time we can do something about all this stuff. Well, uh, first of all, I think I think we always have to remember that many of these problems are the, are, are are a function of the fact that this city is growing, has done well. We bring in about 130,000, 125,000 people every every year. Uh, so it seems to me we have to remember that as we get responsibly critical of what's happening. Should it be more talk about it in the election? This is the quietest election I can ever recall. I, 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 I haven't heard anything. Uh, well, at any rate, you know, let me just finish by saying that, that uh, uh, we need more more talk. We need more talk about what they intend to do, but we need to have a louder noise. We don't hear much at all. James, is it quiet in your front uh, on the election front? Well, I'm out there uh, knocking on doors almost every day. I'm, I'm heading out there now after this interview. I take the election periods very seriously to talk to people at the door uh, over the phone, although we do it all year round. Uh, and, uh, and, and really listen to some of the things that are, that are frustrating them and, and their suggestions for improvement. But I think the bottom line is that it's still a very livable city. As far as big cities are concerned, it's a great place to, to come, to, to have a fresh start, to start a business, to send your kids to school. Uh, it's a reasonably safe city for its, for its size, prosperous. Uh, city services are, are the Cadillac of services. Uh, across most major urban centers in North America and Western Europe, but it has growing pains, and it is the fastest-growing city in North America, and unfortunately, we're paying part of the price of that. Oh, Lauren, is that sugarcoating everything? <laughs> Perhaps a bit. Uh, I think that there's just a lot of complacency and, and apathy among the voters right now because you feel, you know, after five years of ATC upgrades every single week on the TTC, you start to feel like that's just life and that's how it is, and there's nothing we can do to stop it. And, and same with, you know, construction crews just closing off lanes, carte blanche whenever they want to. It's like, that's just how Toronto is. And and like Councillor Pasternak said, we have so many great services, so many great things in the city that kind of offset that so people are willing to deal with it. I don't think that a lot of people realize that through the power of voting, they might actually be able to make a change. Um, so hopefully that's something that, you know, some candidates kind of express to them. Um, you know, things can be done more efficiently always. Okay. On that note, we will wrap things up and we're going to keep harping on this. And people uh, feel free to call in with your frustrations because it is an election period. As David says, it's the quietest one he's seen. Uh, so we really should be making some noise, audience. We should be making some noise. And in the meantime, thank you so much, David Crombie, James Pasternak, and Lauren O'Neill. Thank you. You're very welcome. Take care, Libby. Take care, David. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right, bye. And we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll look at the latest developments in Putin's war on Ukraine. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, Western leaders at the 77th annual UN General Assembly used the opportunity to slam Vladimir Putin's latest salvo in his war on Ukraine and the nation's pledge to maintain support for Ukraine in the face of Putin's threats to use nuclear weapons, his partial mobilization, and planned annexation of more Ukrainian reason, regions. Here is U.S. President Joe Biden. Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter. No more important than the clear prohibition against countries taking the territory of their neighbor by force. Again, just today, President Putin has made overt nuclear threats against Europe and a reckless disregard for the responsibilities of the non-proliferation regime. 
Well, the question is, will all of this translate into action beyond what we are seeing now? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Dr. Paul Good, Macmillan Chair in Russian Studies at Carleton University, and Phil Vashilevsky, a 2022 Templeton Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Thank you both so much for joining us. Hello. Hi, thank you. Let's let's begin with Dr. Good. What was your reaction to what you heard at the UN yesterday, and uh, will it amount to anything more? Well, the the announcement, I think, was was largely expected. I, I don't think it came as a shock or a surprise, at least to the Kremlin. Um, I think probably there are other things that were a bit more distressing that happened in the previous week, really, which involved more the treatment that Putin received from his erstwhile allies in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and the gradual hemorrhaging of influence, uh, Russia's influence in Eurasia, where previously it had been more or less uh, you know, a key peacekeeper, if not a hegemonic force in the area. That's dwindling, and especially Russia's relationship with China has to be especially concerning to the Kremlin today. Mm-hmm. Um, Phil Vashilevsky, what what's your view? Do you think that uh, all those statements from all those leaders will have any impact? One could hope. And one of the things that I wish the president had done, his efforts were good, but that our diplomacy had worked a little bit ahead of time to get a United Nations General Assembly resolution demanding that Russia forego any use of nuclear weapons again in Ukraine especially since Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons uh, in, um, in um, the previous decades uh, in exchange for territorial integrity guarantees from Russia. I believe that if we had led a large vote in the United Nations General Assembly on this, similar to the vote condemning their um, uh, Russian invasion in March, this would have given significant uh, um, deterrent uh, value uh, for the president's efforts as he continues. Now, one of the interpretations you hear is that uh, Putin's latest moves are the sign of desperation. Uh, There are reports that a lot of people are trying to get out of the Soviet Union. You can't get a flight to Georgia, even though it costs a fortune. Uh, What do you make of those reports, Dr. Good? Well, it is very clearly a sign of desperation, uh, and it's, it's reinforced really by both the battlefield reversals that Russia has suffered, as well as the geopolitical losses that have suffered in recent weeks. And there's clearly growing pressure, I think, within the Kremlin uh, to escalate at the same time that there's an awareness that there's a real risk after uh, popular backlash if there is a widespread mobilization. So this partial mobilization is probably a solution that satisfies nobody. It doesn't satisfy, you know, the army. And the reason the actual numbers for the call-up actually were were classified, they're treated as the state secrets, and nobody knows exactly how many are going to be called up, even though publicly uh, Putin and Defense Minister Shoigu claim to be 300,000. The fact that that has been declared secret and has not been leaked, though, is already causing uh, problems for the for the regime domestically. Mm-hmm. And uh, Phil Vashilevsky, is there are there any signs that uh, people inside Russia are getting sick of this? In your opinion, uh, yes, there is. The, the Russians have a almost a Janus-based uh, approach towards this war. Uh, most of them, uh, up until a couple of weeks ago, and certainly the ultranationalists, want to win this war. Uh, and certainly don't want to lose it. Unfortunately, very few Russian men wish to fight in it. Yes. And in that case, Putin is is very much trapped because the amount of losses he has taken from his army, he needs to basically create an entirely new army. However, there is right now no desire for people to volunteer, and we will see if we will even be able to conscript enough people uh, to fill the ranks of the, uh, the casualties that he suffered. We should also take note that this is not the end of it. Although the Russians have retreated from the Izium area and lost a large amount of heavy equipment there, there is still a large part of the Russian army on the north bank of the Dnieper River in Erkersan, approximately 15,000 men, and the Ukrainians have destroyed the bridges across the river there. So that force is trapped. And even if they can get back across the river, uh, which is a big if, they will lose all their heavy equipment. 
So things are going to get even worse for Putin in the next few weeks regarding the state of his army in uh, Ukraine. Uh, and what of his statement uh, that uh, the threat of nuclear weapons is is not a bluff? Uh, it, people are saying he has become perhaps irrational or desperate or, or what? I mean, uh, does anyone doubt that he would follow through on that? Well, that's one of the reasons why earlier I suggested that it would have been good if we could have gotten an UNGA resolution not that it would influence Putin, but for the people around him to understand the consequences that would happen if he used to take such a step. Putin may be in such a position where he believes that the state and himself are inseparable. Therefore, to save himself, he would use nuclear weapons. However, the people around him, the people who have to carry out that orders, may have a different perspective. And that, uh, that is one of the hopes that I have, that even if he gives such an order, that it would not be carried out. Hmm. Well, uh, and what about this uh, threat or these sham referenda that may or may not be taking place? Would that give him more? Uh, what would that do for him if he annexes these areas? It, it would to give him nothing. No one in the world is going to recognize this outside of maybe Belarus. And even that would not be sure. Um, it's a pretext. He he needs it maybe for his own mind, but no one believes it, uh, and it will really in the end do him no good. Uh, and he will probably lose some of those quote unquote annexed ter- territories very soon. Um, this is not something that is going to turn to an advantage for him. These referenda. Dr. Good, do you agree? And um, I've heard uh, people say that maybe annexing those areas would give him more control about what he can actually do in those areas. Well, annexing the areas will provide at least a pretext uh, for Russia to claim that it is not sending its forces into a foreign country. It's reinforcing um, it's, uh, reinforcing its own borders. Even if those, you know, borders are not legitimate and not recognized by anybody other than Russia, the um, but this is very much what happened with regards to the annexation of Crimea in 2014. It was a way of claiming a legal pretext to be able to, you know, seize control. But uh, but I agree. I don't think that Russia actually gains anything out of it. And part of the thing that is especially troublesome is that the timetable for the referenda has been moved up significantly. And so, you know, initially they were postponed indefinitely only just a couple of weeks ago, and now they're happening, you know, almost uh, uh, tomorrow, um, figuratively. And that means that there is a palpable sense of desperation that Putin needs to have something tangible that he can point to as some gain, something that Russia has achieved, and so that he can continue to sell the war, as he did on television yesterday, as a war in defense of Russia not necessarily in defense of Donbass, but specifically in defense of Russia. And uh, so what happens next? I mean, are we at a stalemated kind of a point, or what would you expect will happen next? Phil? Um, The most significant part of the past two weeks of fighting is that the Ukrainians have finally wrestled the initiative of combat operations away from the Russians. The initiative is now with the Ukrainians even though some Russian units in the Donbass continue to make some minor gains. So what we're going to see is probably after they regroup, refit, uh, further offensive actions by the Ukrainians. And depending on the success of that, I believe, I think I've spoken about this in the past, that the Russian army right now is very brittle. And the collapse you saw on a divisional level near Izium could be done at a core or even army level if they break through at Kherson or down south towards Melitopol and move towards the Isthmus with the peninsula of Crimea. So, like I said, the worst is not yet over for Putin's army. Okay, anything uh, to add as we look ahead, Dr. Good? Yeah, I would just actually um, add on to, to Phil's point there that one thing that is abundantly clear is that this call-up is not going to do anything to improve morale. In fact, it's likely to, to worsen things, and given that people who soldiers who are already on contract have had their contracts extended indefinitely now until the end of the mobilizational period. And you have reports 
out today now of, you know, as much as 10% of entire villages from Russia's ethnic republics being rounded up for conscription. And that is potentially uh, uh, deadly for the army's morale going forward. Uh, so even if Russia is able to supply it, it's hard to imagine sustaining anything other than perhaps, you know, staffing the rear um, or even perhaps occupation forces in the, the territories after a referenda. But uh, it means it's going to be a long slot, but inevitably a very difficult one for Russia to be able to maintain any sort of foothold. Well, the war drags on. Thank you so much, Dr. Paul Good and Phil Vasilevsky. Appreciate your insight. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Okay, we're taking another break, and when we come back, uh, we continue with developments overseas. Protests are raging in Iran after a 22-year-old woman died in custody after she was arrested for not wearing her hijab properly. We'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Well, that is the sound of protests raging in Iran following the death in custody of a 22-year-old woman who was arrested by the so-called morality police in Tehran for apparently not wearing her hijab properly. Apparently, she was showing too much hair. Women are cutting their hair and burning their headscarves in response to Masa Amini's death, and that is despite the government's attempt to curb the dissent with an internet blackout. Now, we have seen anti-regime protests before in Iran, so the question is, will these have a more lasting impact? Right now, let's go to Hadi Gaimi, Executive Director of the Center for Human Rights in Iran. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So uh, what do you make of the extent and the wide nature of these protests? Uh, Well, I'm not surprised at all. This has been a trend unfolding over the past six years. And each time the protests are getting larger and more diverse and geographically also uh, covering the whole country. Um, we, I expect this to be a protest movement that continue to evolve and be a serious challenge for the Islamic Republic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I mean, presumably they will be able to quell these, uh, with violence. Uh, yes, most probably. If the past is an indication, they have no shame in opening live fire and killing, uh, upwards of a thousand people as they did in November 2019. Uh, however, these protests are showing very significant differences than the previous ones. Uh, first of all, women of all ages are uh, the major driver of it and highly, uh, highly visible in them. Uh, this is really a woman-led protest in large numbers. Secondly, they are truly grassroots and spontaneous. Uh, nobody organizing them. They're very horizontal. And uh, thirdly, they are giving the message to the regime this time that they are not afraid. Fear seems to have evaporated. The fact that so many women are taking off their scarf and burning it and pushing back against the riot police in the videos you see. Uh, that is a new development that I think will make the use of violence pretty much useless over time because this protest will continue to erupt uh, in the near term. And uh, the more killings seem to only instigate more people to come out. Well, this is like a truly, I mean, it's, it's, it's beyond belief, a young woman. And she, she was wearing the hijab, but uh, they thought mm, wasn't tight enough or she was yeah. showing a little bit of hair and her father is now saying that they're lying, that they would not let him see the body. They said this 22-year-old healthy young woman suffered a heart attack. I mean, yes. who would they think would believe that? 
Uh, indeed, they're very shameless, and they think they can really uh, bend the truth and present their own twisted uh, account. And this is really about the fact that women, there is a war on women by Islamic Republic, and particularly this president since he came to power. As you mentioned, she was actually wearing multi-layers of long clothing and hijab. It's clear that it was an arbitrary personal decision that this woman for some reason has to be punished. And that is what's shaken the nation, that when their police and their government is sending out thousands of its security forces in the name of uh, imposing morality to target them arbitrarily and literally kill them. Uh, families all are asking, will my daughter, my sister, or my wife, when she leaves the home, come back alive? That is why so many of them are outraged and on the street. I, w- I want to ask you a bit about the Revolutionary Guard and the security forces and and the army. I mean, is there any kind of wavering in their support of the regime? Because obviously, yeah. uh, if that happens... Uh, well, there are dozens of different armed forces, especially the ones who are confronting people domestically, and they come from all the institutions named and more. During the first days, actually, we noticed that the regular police who were uh, who were tasked with confronting protesters uh, were shaken, were shaken, and actually were uh, surrounded, outnumbered in certain places, and chased away and beaten up. In terms of generally the armed forces fracturing and uh, con- and coming to the side of the people, uh, obviously the Revolutionary Guard controls the, the country right now in all political economic aspects. And let me just add, this is a lot about wealth and economy too. Uh, the country's wealth is being pillaged by Revolutionary Guards and people close to it. Um, so they want to keep that status quo. But the army, which is really absent from the scene and is very small compared to Revolutionary Guards and its capabilities, is being urged by opposition figures to change sides and start playing a role. Um, I highly doubt if that is possible, but by at the end of the day, all the rank and file of these armed forces have their own families, their own daughters and wives and sisters, and I think uh, eventually they will crumble and not be able to continue killing their own compatriots. Uh, What about social media and the role of social media? Because they're shutting down the internet. In the past, we know that the protests have spread and been fueled by social media. So how effective is that being in in quelling things? Um, Unfortunately, it has been very effective, especially by preventing documentation of the extent of killing. Again, in November 2019, they shut down the Internet for five days and killed an unknown number of people, anywhere between 500 to 1,500 or possibly more. And because then they they uh, they really harass and intimidate the families of the dead, we can never have an accurate accounting of what happened. So we are very worried that shutdown of internet is, is indeed a harbinger for a massacre to come. And eventually the solution of it is going to be when internet access is not in the hands of the government. And of course, we know the technology exists. There's a company called Starlink that providing satellite um, internet. And uh, I hope that they will extend it to Iran as soon as possible. Eventually, we need a situation where internet is not taken hostage in the hands of governments who can just shut it down so easily. Uh, so what is your prediction? Will they be successful by shutting down the internet and in, in, uh, shutting the protests down? Uh, again, it's impossible to predict the course of events in Iran. It's always been surprising, beginning with the 1979 revolution, how they evolved. No one can predict it. Uh, however, the recent past indicates that, yes, they're willing to do a lot of killing and push people back, shut down the Internet, and keep calm for maybe a few weeks or a few months. Uh, but again, the bottom line is that the government has decoupled itself from society. People do not see any of their interests being reflected in the policies being enacted. And because of that, I think 80 million people will eventually overwhelm 
the small number of ruling class who are benefiting from a status quo and some kind of change has to come. It is a matter of protesters having the ability to have political representation uh, to push back against government. And that means opening the space. That means uh, freeing political prisoners. The kind of people who could be the voice of people right now have are uh, in large numbers in prisons and uh, not able to be there. So getting them released and uh, opening the space for freedom of expression and association is key. Uh, do you have a sense, have protesters been killed? And if so, uh, do you have a sense of the numbers you were referring to? A... Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yes, indeed, we do, even though it's really hard because the number of places people have been killed is very large. Uh, but we know as of today, our own sources uh, in Iran telling us at least 36 people been killed. Uh, the states and news agencies have confirmed 18. Uh, my own uh, guesstimate based on previous uh, research and the way things unfolded is that true numbers should be probably 100 or more. But we will not know till we can have more documentation. Mm-hmm. And the way they're being killed is literally being shot at, even with BB guns. There's several deaths from air guns and BB guns, and then live ammunition being used as well. And uh, you're saying that this is a protest fueled by women. Do you know, or is it women who are being killed here? Uh, no, actually, all the uh, the pictures I've seen, we actually have only pictures of about eight to ten of them. They are men from the Kurdish region where uh, Mahsa came from, from her hometown and surrounding region. Okay. Uh, so uh, a woman are probably being injured. We have a lot of videos of them being beaten up and uh, taken away. So I expect that we have about a thousand people injured nationwide. And uh, probably there are many women among them. But with Internet being shut down, it's been very hard to collect information. Uh, You're talking about the Kurdish region. So are there uh, political uh, considerations on top of uh, the protest against uh, killing a woman? Uh, yeah, I mean, people been chanting death to dictator and the uh, Islamic Republic must go and they're targeting the entire political system. But there is no ethnic dimension to it. Actually, it is the government that's trying to say that these protests are really Kurdish separatists in the Kurdish region. And they're trying to exploit ethnic uh, differences. But the fact that people from all over the country have come out in addition to Kurdistan is the indication that there is no ethnic component. It's really a nation confronting its governing class. Okay. Thank you so much for that update and uh, all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. So if you didn't have a chance to get through or if something else is on your mind, please call back tomorrow. We always have a very entertaining and diverse show on Fridays. And we will talk then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.